0: Welcome to the August 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, a microchip technology for diagnosing different types of diabetes...
1: ...could make an appropriate decision whether a patient has type 1 diabetes and they need to be admitted to the hospital for insulin therapy, or they have type 2 diabetes and they could be discharged and seen as an outpatient.
0: A new platform to screen drugs for multiple sclerosis. On this platform, we're able to...
2: Observe both the differentiation process, as well as this membrane wrapping that's indicative of myelination.
0: Plus, modeling lung cancer with circulating tumor cells. But first, talking about my regeneration. In this month's issue of Nature Medicine, we have a special focus section dedicated entirely to the field of regenerative medicine. There are review articles on topics ranging from stem cell aging to injury-induced tissue repair. There's a perspective article on the translational barriers in regenerative medicine. There's so much, in fact, that it's not even entirely in nature medicine. For this special focus, we have teamed up with our sister journal, Nature Biotechnology, to bring you more than a dozen articles covering the whole gamut that is regenerative medicine and stem cell biology. And to learn more about the special, I'm joined now by Nature Medicine Associate Editor, Hannah Stauer. Hi, Hannah. Hi. So, Hannah, we're publishing a ton of articles devoting many pages and and online space to this, and and nature biotechnology is too. Why devote so much to regenerative medicine now?
3: Um, Yeah, I think it's just, it's an interesting time for the field. And so, you know, we thought it was a good time to look at both what we know about different types of stem cells, different types of stem cells in different tissues and then also to think about what are the unifying themes that might help our understanding of stem cell biology and then ultimately bring us to the clinic. So in our focus we, we do have some articles that focus on different tissues so we've got one on lung regeneration for example but then we do have a couple of broader articles that focus on themes such as the niche which is the, the stroma that really interacts with the potentially transplanted st- stem cell and um, you know another article on aging of stem cells.
0: The Nature Medicine articles have a very translational molecular feel to them but of course regenerative medicine also spans from basic applications of stem cells through to tissue engineering yeah. and I guess some of that is covered uh, much more so in Nature Biotechnology. Was that part of the impetus for joining up with our sister journal to to make this special?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think something that's going to really progress regenerative medicine is maybe more classic, basic biologists thinking about how to work with those people that are working on technologies. For example, Nature Biotechnology has an exciting article about um, 3D printing, which is something 10 years ago really would not have been included in this focus, but has really begun to take off in the in the world of tissue engineering right now. So this was really a great time to think about the regenerative medicine field more holistically and in terms of technologies as well as understanding of biology.
0: And if I can make a shameless plug, I should mention, of course, that there are news articles, yeah. uh, both that we've published and that Nature Biotechnology have published. Uh, do you want to tell us about any of those or, <laughs> or should yeah, we do the honors? Yeah, <laughs> well...
3: You did write two great news articles for us. Um, <laughs> one on the the setting of standards for the stem cells. Do you want Do you want to talk about that? I thought that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought that what I got interested in this this article about standard setting. It's really about guaranteeing quality assurances for the field as scientists move from the lab into the clinic, as you've mentioned and. Many places are starting to think about this, but most notably the National Institute for Standards and Technology, the big U.S. government lab that is probably best known for housing the the kilogram against which all weights are defined or for having the world's most accurate atomic clock. But now they're starting to think about developing robust, reproducible assays for pluripotent stem cells and trying to say... What is a pluripotent stem cell? We have our various metrics, but there's different levels of pluripotency. And one lab's definition of pluripotency might be different. And so that we can all be speaking the same language uh, between various labs, but also importantly with the FDA, we need these single tests that people can use.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, Heterogeneity is, you know, it's, it's very much a problem. Uh, or a, ch- a challenge within cultured stem cells um, and also in terms of the differentiation protocols you know reaching a standardized endpoint is something that really we really need to be able to, to measure
0: all right well it's a fantastic read i recommend everyone go and, and check out all the articles uh, and thank you so much for hannah for for taking the time of course to edit these first and then to tell us about the uh, the whole section
3: oh that's fine it's been a very very enjoyable process
0: Now, not every article in this month's issue of Nature Medicine is about regenerative medicine. We also have a report out about a new way to differentiate between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Making this distinction used to be easy. If a child had diabetes, it was type 1. And if an adult had the disease, it was type 2. That discrepancy was so clear-cut, in fact, that doctors even used age in naming the diseases. Type 1? Well, it was called juvenile-onset diabetes, while type 2 was referred to as adult-onset diabetes. But with rising rates of obesity and diabetes, especially among children, that simple breakdown is no longer true. Nowadays, depending on the location, as many as one-third of all kids diagnosed with diabetes actually have the type 2 kind. These children don't need insulin therapy, unlike kids with type 1 diabetes, but diagnosing the right kind of diabetes can be tricky, says Brian Feldman from Stanford University, the senior author of the new report in Nature Medicine.
1: At the time of diagnosis, there's actually no way currently to know for sure what type of diabetes a patient has. And the implications for that is that, at least in children, we assume that it's type 1 until proven otherwise because uh, the alternative it puts the patient at extreme risk of developing um, worsening symptoms and even uh, risk of death. And so we treat them as if they have type 1 and then we correct ourselves if we need to when we get the test results back. Um, so that was the, that's the current standard. Um, and it really is a technological hurdle that's getting in the way of good medical care. And we thought that was a problem worth it trying to address.
0: And here in Nature Medicine, you're offering a technical solution. Can you tell me about this plasmonic chip you've developed, starting with what is a plasmonic chip?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well, this was done in very close uh, proximity and collaboration with uh, Hanji Dai's group here at Stanford in the chemistry department. Um, And they actually have discovered that using plasmonic gold can enrich um, immunoassays uh, signal-to-noise signal, um, signal ratio. Um, where where we adapted this technology was to apply it to type 1 diabetes and resolve um, what has been a really recalcitrant problem in the field, which is that moving away from the radio-amino assay to next-generation platforms um, has not worked for diabetes. The next generation, like just even ELISA platforms, were not working. And so the plasmonic gold surface enhanced the signal enough that when we uh, applied it, we thought that we could actually detect the signals where other platforms were failing.
0: And could it be run in the doctor's office at the point of care?
1: That's exactly our dream. Um, currently, it's still uh, on a laboratory level, and we're running it in an um, academic setting. But they, we don't see. Um, any major barriers yet um, to translating it all the way to the doctor's office, and that's really the most ideal setting, at least into the emergency room, where you could make an appropriate decision whether a patient has type 1 diabetes and they need to be admitted to the hospital for insulin therapy, or they have type 2 diabetes and they could be discharged and seen as an outpatient.
0: Thinking outside the confines of large, well-equipped hospitals in California, the U.S. or other parts of the Western world, could this kind of chip be used in um, lower resource settings to help diagnose type 1 diabetes in less developed countries?
1: Yes, in fact, that's an area that we are quite excited about. Um, The technology itself is cutting edge and we believe state-of-the-art but um, we are able to put it together in a way that's very accessible and very user-friendly and does not require um, large resources to implement. And currently, RIA, that's the radio amino assay, does require that and even requires radioactivity and um, other resources that are just inaccessible to regions of the globe. And so as the incidence of type 1 diabetes increases, more and more children throughout the globe are going without being diagnosed, and this is really putting them at grave risk. So we really dream about being able to move this technology forward in a way that uh, enables global access to diagnosing diabetes.
0: Brian Feldman. Coming up, a new way to look for multiple sclerosis drugs, but first, a system for modeling deadly lung cancer. With the story, here's Nature Medicine's Amanda Keener
4: small cell lung cancer is a difficult disease to treat. The five-year survival rate stands at just 5%, and the tumors are notorious for developing resistance to chemotherapy drugs. Getting a clear picture of what causes drug resistance requires repeated biopsies over the course of treatment, which is just not logistically possible given that most cases of small cell lung cancer are inoperable. But as an alternative doctors and scientists have developed a type of liquid biopsy which makes use of cancer cells that break away from tumors and float freely through the blood. In the past, doctors have shown that they can count these circulating tumor cells, or CTCs, to monitor disease progression. And now, in a new study in Nature Medicine, researchers have implanted these CTCs into mice to test drug therapies and probe the genetics of drug resistance.
5: The ability to grow circulating tumor cells in mice, has just opened up a new opportunity to understand the biology of the disease as it evolves from initially drug-sensitive to progressive disease, and it also gives us this opportunity to test new therapies in the mouse model.
4: That's Caroline Dive, head of the Clinical and Experimental Pharmacology Group at the Cancer Research UK Manchester Institute, who led the study. The tumors that Dive and her colleagues grew in mice acted as sentinels for human tumors.
5: So these tumors grow uh, and their pathology looks almost identical to the, to the pathology that you see in a diagnostic biopsy from the patient.
4: The tumors didn't just look the same, they also acted the same as the original patient tumors and developed resistance to the same chemotherapy drugs. By growing the tumors in mice, Dive's group is generating a lot more material to work with than would be possible using circulating tumor cells straight from the blood. More starting material means that they can do more experiments to understand what genetic changes occur as a tumor becomes resistant.
5: What we can do with the tumors that grow in the mice is we can do genomics, so a whole exome sequencing all the tumors. We can do RNA sequencing in the tumors, And we're just starting a program of proteomic analysis, so the protein, the pathways that are activated in the
4: tumors. But one thing this approach won't be able to do is predict which of the patients will develop resistance. According to Angela Alama, chief of laboratory research at the lung cancer unit of the San Martino University Hospital in Genoa, Italy, the tumors grow too slowly to have a direct impact on patient treatment.
5: The approach is... Very interesting. The timing is a little bit long. The problem is that it will take a while to have the tumor grow enough to be available for many uh, analyses.
4: According to Dive, growing these tumors in mice is a complementary approach to other methods already in use, like single-cell genetic sequencing of circulating tumor cells or analysis of free DNA from the blood. She is hopeful, though, that by studying these models, her group will be able to identify drug targets aimed specifically at recurring or resistant small cell lung cancer.
5: If we can really comprehensively understand the biology, can we identify new drug targets that haven't yet been prosecuted in small cell lung cancer? Bearing in mind no targeted therapies thus far has really shown benefit in this really difficult-to-treat disease.
4: Only further clinical validation will tell. But Dive is hopeful that the answer to this question is yes. For Nature Medicine, I'm Amanda Keener.
0: We end this month now with a new drug screening assay for multiple sclerosis. First, here's the way the scientists have traditionally searched for MS drugs in the laboratory. They start with a type of neural precursor cell called an oligodendrocyte. And then as the oligodendrocytes mature and express genes involved in making the myelin sheath that normally wraps around the axon of a neuron... They search for compounds that can enhance this process, a process that is deficient in people with multiple sclerosis and other neurodegenerative autoimmune disorders. So that's the way it's always been done. There's only one problem. There's no axon. There's not even a neuron. In fact, in that old lab-based method, there's nothing at all for the myelin to physically wrap around. Reporting now in Nature Medicine, however, a team led by Jonah Chan from the University of California, San Francisco, has developed a new three-dimensional platform for high-throughput drug screening in multiple sclerosis. On this platform,
2: we're able to observe both the differentiation process as well as this membrane wrapping that's indicative of myelination.
0: And these structures, you call them micropillars, they're basically just little cones or spikes made of glass, right? That's
2: right. Uh, Through a bit of serendipity, we, were, uh, we discovered that the cells that make myelin will wrap structures that were very similar in axons, but it could be made of synthetic materials such as um, polystyrene, plastic, or even glass. However, we realized that we needed to make a structure that was uh, cone-shaped um, and that stood up straight up um, on a glass surface because there's really no way to quantify the amount of myelin that a cell makes unless we can simplify it so that the answer is a, is a yes or no, a binary answer, something that can be very quickly um, detected and something that we can automate the detection and quantification of.
0: And so these little cones kind of provide artificial axons in which to observe the wrapping of the myelin. That's right. Now that's very interesting to watch, of course, but the real goal here is to find drugs that can promote the myelin formation and hopefully help treat diseases in which that myelination is faulty, like multiple sclerosis.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. So about five years ago, I had this lunch with the chair of neurology at UCSF, Stephen Hauser, and he brought it to my attention that the field of MS research was really lacking a a high-throughput screen for myelination. And he asked me if it was possible to come up with a a high-throughput screen and if so, could we screen FDA approved drugs, drugs that could um, go directly to the patient as quickly as possible?
0: So, now using your micropillars as a high throughput screening assay, you looked at the myelination potential of up to, I think, 1,000 different compounds?
2: Uh, we started off with a screen of 1,000 compounds. And the main cluster that we found were compounds that were called anti muscarinic compounds. These are compounds that are antagonists against um, these receptors in the nervous system called uh, acetylcholine muscarinic receptors. This was a main cluster that we identified.
0: And some of the promising hits are an antihistamine called clomastine. You've got uh, some other kind of well-known drugs out there, like a defunct Parkinson's agent.
2: Yeah, so you'll notice uh, from the paper that we've, uh, we hit a kind of a, a mixed bag of compounds that could potentially act on the same
0: receptor. And one of these looked promising enough that you've launched a phase two trial in people with MS?
2: That's right. So again, um, I would say it's a bit of serendipity that in this particular library was a compound called clemestine, uh, which is a first generation antihistamine, um, but it has a terrific safety profile, especially as it was uh, made in the 1970s. And Over a million patients have taken this. You know, with a safety profile this good, we realized um, this was also our top hit. And so it gave us this really unique opportunity to discuss this with the FDA and and see if we could use this drug uh, in a phase
0: two trial. Now, just taking a step back and, and looking at the platform you've developed, it seems almost intuitive that you should add this third dimension to the assay, you know, <laughs> that if things have to wrap around uh, a tube, you need the tube or the spike. Yes. Why do you think it took so long for, for you to come along and, and come up with this idea?
2: The truth is that I think we were just very lucky, but a lot of people don't like that answer. There are many things that kind of fell into place for us to be able to do it. Um, I can say when I started in this field about 15 years ago, we were all looking for a signal on the axons that would tell the oligodendrocyte that it was time to wrap it. And so we were all looking for what we called an inductive cue uh, expressed on the axons that could control myelination. And it was not until a graduate student came into the lab and really wanted to challenge this idea of an inductive signal uh, that was turning on myelination when she discovered that the oligodendrocytes would form myelin even on dead axons. And so when we saw myelin being formed around these structures, these axons, these fixed axons, we realized that it couldn't be a, a switch that was being signaled by the axon, but that these cells were just wrapping a permissive structure. And that's when we decided to even try go one step further and try artificial structures like nanofibers, and then ultimately micro-pillars.
0: So, as with most things in science, a little bit of luck and a little bit of elbow grease.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Jonah Chan. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. And that's actually it for me and the Nature Medicine Podcast. By the time this show has reached your ears, I will have actually left the journal. And with my departure, the podcast is going on an indefinite hiatus. It's been an amazing run, and I'm grateful to all you loyal listeners. I wish I could write you each an email to thank you for tuning in each month, but you can do the next best thing. You can write to me personally with any feedback at ailedolgan at gmail.com. That's E-L-I-E-D-O-L-G-I-N at gmail.com. Or you can contact the Nature Medicine editorial staff at medicine at us.nature.com. And as always, you can find links to everything you heard about on the show, including the whole special focus section on regenerative medicine at nature.com slash nature medicine. Until next time, should there be a next time, I'm Ailey Dalgan. Thanks for
5: listening.